You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Ministry Grow Show, a podcast dedicated to helping churches and ministries grow and make more effective impacts for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing digital world. Whether you're building and growing a gospel-centered ministry or leading a church, if you want insight into the strategies, struggles, challenges, and successes of other ministry leaders, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to the Ministry Growth Show. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking with Scott Sabin. He is the CEO of Plant With Purpose. He's been with the organization for 27 years. Scott, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So Scott, can you tell me a little bit about Plant With Purpose and specifically your role within the organization? Sure. Um, Plant With Purpose is a ministry that uh, works around the world in places where extreme poverty and environmental degradation intersect, uh, places where subsistence farmers, some of the hungriest people in the world, depend entirely on the land and the health of the land to feed themselves, to feed their families. And we've specialized at at working in these areas to uh, restore the land that they depend on, to restore their livelihoods, to share the love of, of Christ with them. Uh, we've been around for 35 years. Wow. Um, at work in um, eight countries, and I am um, the CEO, have been working here for 27 years now, and have learned a lot in the process. Oh, I'm We've sure. All- yeah. So 35 years, that's a long time. Good for you guys. Well, thank you. And what are you guys doing lately that you're particularly excited about with Plant With Purpose? Well, there's so much. Um you know, 27 years ago when I started, we were at work in the Dominican Republic with uh, a couple of hundred families. And today, like I say, we're at work in eight countries with um, close to 40,000 families. Um, the two newest countries are probably the ones I'm most excited about. We've been at work in um, the eastern portion of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and have seen God at work in some phenomenal ways in using our ministry to bring reconciliation between ethnic groups and between communities and between men and women. Um, and that has been, that has been phenomenally exciting to me. Um, Mm. the other new project just as, as one year old is working in Northern Ethiopia in partnership with the Ethiopian Orthodox Church to restore land around the ancient church forests of northern Ethiopia. And that's a that's a whole other topic, um, but, um, but we just feel phenomenally privileged to be a part of that. Uh, I'll share with you, it, we learned a few years ago that uh, northern Ethiopia used to be covered with a very diverse um, – Afromontane forest, mm-hmm. maize forest. It's been almost all cut except 30,000 small fragments. Wow. And fragments, those tiny fragments, which range from just a few acres to maybe a, a couple hundred acres, correspond to the churchyards of the Orthodox churches out in the countryside. And because we work specifically with um, farmers in areas that have been deforested, 
we were invited to work alongside the farmers, which are the biggest threat to those church forests, mm-hmm. um, and to help them improve their livelihoods and and restore these forests. It, without visuals, it's impossible to do this justice. But in the last um, year, if you Google um, Ethiopian church forest, you'll see some phenomenal pictures. But it, it's in the last year, um, National Geographic, New York Times, BBC, Nature Magazine have all done articles on these church forests because they are they're like a, a time capsule of what that part of northern Ethiopia used to be like. And they're plant species that have never been cataloged before. Wow. Uh, it, it's just an amazing place to be at work. So it's a little different um, than our, our normal mission. Our, our normal mission or our normal work, the work in eastern Congo uh-huh. matched more closely. It was the poverty that first um, pulled us in to work in that area um, where it was actually the opportunity to to work in these church forests that brought us in to work with, again, still work with poor people, but work in northern Ethiopia. Now, does working in a new place with that have a lot of new challenges that come up that you guys maybe weren't expecting going into it? Um, well, there are always new challenges because we, we work through local partners, which we help establish. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it starts with, with recruiting, um, godly, well-trained, um, competent local people, um, specifically starting with a director and helping the director to build um, their organization. So that's always a new challenge, new people, new culture, new language, um, and in the case of Ethiopia, um, new bureaucracy. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Now you, you mentioned in there that you guys have are serving 40,000 plus families. What does the management of that look like? I mean, that's got to be um, a, a, a difficulty maybe or, or a challenge to, to oversee that serving that many families in the way you guys are serving them. What does that kind of look like for you guys? So the way we're structured is um, with independent um, local partners. And uh, as I just shared, we've helped establish those independent local partners, um, usually starting with a director and empowering that director and helping that director to, to build their team. So we have um, local partners in each of these countries with um, senior staff that are are college graduates, well-trained, but from those countries, um, and then uh, working for them a staff of about uh, 230 individuals who you know, range all the way to people who've never completed elementary school and are serving in the villages that they grew up in. Hmm. So you guys are always working with a local a native uh, director. You're never sending that's, someone from here. That's correct. I mean, we have people in our office who visit regularly, who are the liaison, who specialize in in that region of the world and uh, may speak the language and uh, and are there to help help in planning in providing accountability uh-huh. and uh, and coaching very good now what's your story and faith journey you mentioned that offline but how did that lead you into an organization with uh, a vision for a better environment 
Yeah. Um, sometimes I talk about uh, being an accidental in- environmental advocate. <laughs> I, uh, I, I mean, actually, I'm accidentally in this whole in this this whole line of work. I was a, a Navy officer in once a long time ago and was going to graduate school and um, grew up a Christian here in Southern California. Uh, in graduate school, I, I was uh, studying international relations. I needed a foreign language to finish the program. And so I spent a summer, the summer I got out of the Navy, in Guatemala in an immersion Spanish program. And uh, God used that time to open my eyes to issues of extreme poverty, um, you know, m- meeting families, seeing families that lived in the city dump, just heartbreaking things. Um, extreme poverty, uh, tremendous injustice. The Civil War was still going on at that time. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, and, and most importantly, people living their faith out in a way that I had never seen, never grown up with. People who were basically laying it all on the line for the gospel, risking their lives, going in places where um, they could be killed any time because of their love for the people and of their love for Christ. And I came back so inspired by that. I still had a semester to go in school. Um, I came back to San Diego and was looking for a way to be around that kind of work, to be around people who were doing that sort of thing. And so I, I volunteered at, at Plant With Purpose. And then I volunteered there because of the, the poverty alleviation. I really didn't understand the environmental side of things. I didn't... Uh, didn't see that as particularly important. And uh, I always tell the story. My father, the day I got hired, my father shook his head. He said, seriously, planting trees for Jesus? That's how you're <laughs> going to spend your life? And, and at the time, I wasn't totally sure he was wrong. I was just seeing this more as a stepping stone to um, to maybe getting a job with somebody like World Vision or, mm-hmm. or Food for the Hungry. And um, the more I became immersed in the work, and saw how subsistence farmers, who are, are the hungriest people in the world, the most food insecure people in the world, how incredibly dependent they are on the health of their land, um, the rest made sense. Anyway, I have a whole sermon that I preach on this, and, and basically, you know, I, I originally came to a a understanding of the environment from a very utilitarian perspective. Mm. We plant trees because the people need the trees. Since then, I've, I've learned much more deeply that we also take care of creation because God takes delight in all that he's created. God right. takes delight in creation. And I can you know, cite all sorts of scripture to support that. And then lastly, God gives us a role in participating in his redemptive work, which includes you know, reconciling all things. Anyway, so um, it's been a long journey, and I definitely didn't start where I am today in terms of my understanding of the environment. Um, you know, I, I, I boiled it down to we plant trees because the people need the trees. Mm. Now, was that shift in your mindset pretty early on in, in volunteering with the organization, or did it take a handful of years for you to get to that point? It you know, it, it's hard, as long as it's been, it's hard to remember. I think a lot of it's been fairly gradual, but I think, uh, you know, very formative in that were my first visits to Haiti. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's an 
a country that that many people are familiar with the fact that they've cut most of the native forest and as a result the land has become barren and dry the topsoil is eroded away and uh, people are still trying to farm steep hillsides with no topsoil and and rain that falls irregularly what people don't know and what really excites me is that process is reversible Mm. and we've seen rivers and streams begin to flow again we've seen um, hillsides become green and fertile and verdant much more quickly than, than you might imagine. So um, that's a long answer to your question, but the answer was I think that it was seeing farmers trying to survive on land that we would regard as, as utter wasteland mm-hmm. that really changed my perspective. Now getting getting your national partners and those that you serve to buy in on this process, that it, this is a a good thing that will um, help the longevity of of their production and their land is that a difficult is that a, i mean a, to use a for lack of a better word is that a difficult sell when you go into a community and say here here's how we want to help you um do they do they see that it can benefit or is there a, a big education process for you guys when you go into a community there's an education process but maybe not as big as you might imagine um, the amazing thing to me is how well subsistence farmers know and understand the land. Mm. So I've had farmers in Haiti who, like I say, probably haven't finished elementary school, maybe illiterate, explain to me the water cycle and how a watershed functions with elo- an eloquence that is unmatched by an American ecology or biology professor. Mm. But always, always finish that explanation with a so we know we shouldn't cut trees but how are we going to feed our kids how am i going to feed my children and that was where we connected made the connection from with poverty and environmental degradation that it it, right now it's a vicious cycle right the people are cutting trees to make a living to sell as firewood to clear new land for farming the more trees they cut, the poorer their land becomes, the poorer they become. And so you have this vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. By addressing both sides of that, there's an opportunity for a virtuous cycle. By addressing um, extreme poverty, and we use a village savings and loan model for doing that, um, along with small business training. But keep in mind, a farm is a small business. And so they have the farms that they can invest in as their land becomes healthier. And um, so there's some education process, but there's also a process of removing removing barriers of poverty mm-hmm. and helping people to regain their self-confidence through small successes. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like your guys' model is of very much come in and, and uh, teach and guide rather than come in and provide handout. And so... What does that process look like for you guys? Have you thought as you have thought about uh, not just coming in and doing this for the communities that you serve, but alongside and 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 creating some sustainability within the communities so that they can go do this themselves and empower themselves and uh, really invest dignity in in these communities? Yeah, um, and that that has been a, a learning process as well. I think that it was not as strong a value when I started. Mm. Uh, and we made some mistakes. Uh, but somewhere along the line, we realized that 
our biggest allies are the people themselves. They're the ones who can transform their communities. They're the ones who can restore the land. Um, yeah, there's so many stories about that that I'm really excited about. Uh, in our partners in Tanzania have planted over 12 million trees. Wow. Um, and, you know, subsistence farmers or small-scale farmers are often blamed for the deforestation problem. I was in Tanzania, and every year we have a, um, a celebration. And I was there a couple years ago for this celebration and an award ceremony for people who've done the most planting trees. And we're driving out there. Our board chair says, first he says, Scott, we're expecting 7,000 people today. And the keynote speaker had to cancel. Do you mind filling in? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then he, he said, Here's the, here was the keynote speaker's speech. It's in Swahili, but maybe your translator can help you with it. Uh -huh. uh, I kind of put that aside and... and but the thing is, is, as we were walking, we had this celebration in this soccer field. As we were walking up there, it was a procession. I look behind me, and I see literally thousands of people in this procession into this, into this soccer field, um, all of them having paid to be there. Um, and they're celebrating planting a million and a half trees this year, and they did it voluntarily, and they did it on their own land. And, and so what, what I was able to share with them is around the world, people talk about smallholder farmers being the problem when it comes to deforestation. In Tanzania, you have become the solution. Mm -hmm. And not only that, you see it as a, a, uh, a, visual, um, a visual demonstration of your faith because a lot of them are doing it as, as Christians, seeing that they are bringing reconciliation not just with their neighbors, which they are, and um, not just with um, you know their families, which they are, and not just with God, which they are, but also with the land, it's with creation itself. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, well, that's a long answer. I guess what I'm getting at is we've come to see that the people are our biggest allies. They're the ones doing the work, um, and we've switched from being about projects to being about people and people as partners, not not projects. That's cool. That's a I think a good segue for my next question. How do you guys work discipleship into your programs and connect that planting tree aspect of what you do to making disciples? Yeah, well, there's a number of ways we do it. We come alongside the local churches, and in a lot of places we work, the pastors are bivocational. They're farmers. Um, they are members of the savings groups. Uh, but we come alongside the churches, help them to, to be more active in reaching out to their communities. At the same time, through the savings groups, as people begin to experience small successes, it gives a perfect opportunity to talk about agency and vocation and the fact that that God gives us talents mm -hmm. um, and, and asks us, even requires us each to invest them on behalf of the kingdom. And um, what's remarkable to me is how empowering that is, that knowledge that you were created for a purpose. That's part of plant with purpose. You were created for a purpose and you have something to contribute to the kingdom. So um, you know, we, we work with a lot of returning refugees in, in Burundi, and in many cases, 
they spent years in refugee camps where they haven't been permitted to do anything productive. Wow. And so being told, you've been given gifts and you were created for a purpose, and that purpose can advance God's kingdom is tremendously empowering. I'll share a story. This this relates back to my first comment um, about uh, Congo and some miraculous things. I was visiting some of the initial communities we were working in, um, six first communities, and we were hiking um, up this steep hillside between them. There's no road. So it was a three-day hike, two days up and one day down. And lots of local people came with us we there was eight of us you know four local or four or five local staff and four visiting staff and then 50 other people who hiked with us and then camped with us on the edge of the forest and our uh, our local director told me says, scott you know the the guy who's been walking with you for the last two days who's been helping carry your pack was uh the leader of one of the the guerrilla groups one of the armed groups and uh i said really wow can i interview him so i sat down with this guy and i asked him uh you know what had changed in his life and he says you know the men here didn't do much we would just sit around and play cards and fight and then your pastor came and started talking about work being a gift from god and that i have something to contribute and i thought maybe Maybe if I help my wife on the farm, together we could do something really great. Mm. And then he goes on to talk about how he, they, the militia group had disbanded and they turned in their, their weapons to the government. And, and I'm, you know, coming from an evangelical background, I'm, I'm asking him, so did you become a Christian then? And he gives me kind of an odd look. He says, no, no, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in the church. I was baptized in the church. I got married in the church. I just never knew it applied to anything besides Sunday before. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. And then, so this guy, and, and there's a lot of people in the community who have similar stories. This guy has gone on to see his calling, his vocation as bringing reconciliation between warring ethnic groups and helping his wife and being a leader in the transformation of the area. Um, we have a video, uh, and, and I don't know, maybe you can link to it, but a video about this watershed, very similar story. It's not the same guy, which is exciting because it means that the story is repeated at least twice. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not the same guy who's a former child soldier who talks a lot about beginning to understand that God had given him more of a calling than than just, you know, sitting around and playing cards. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely, I'll, I'll uh, link that into the show notes. Sure. Well, what has been one of the hardest lessons you've learned uh, leading this organization? Oh man, there there are so many. I <laughs> I made a list. I, I think early on, learning that it was possible to do harm. Um, you're probably familiar with the book "When Helping Hurts." Yeah, which opened a lot of our eyes to the, or a lot of the eyes of people in the church to the fact that that you can actually do harm mm-hmm. and, and having some direct experiences of, of, of doing that early on and realizing that just because everything made sense on paper here didn't mean that it made sense to the local people and we weren't involving them. You know, the whole idea of empowering and seeing them as partners rather than seeing them as the project. Right. That, was, that was a very painful lesson. 
Um, the years have blunted the pain anyway. Um, <laughs> I think learning that I was going to be a fundraiser was a very hard lesson. Mm. I love fundraising today. Um, but not only did I not love fundraising, I didn't like the idea of fundraising. I didn't like the idea of fundraising. I think I've gone from, from seeing it as a, um, you know, as begging Mm -hmm. to, um, seeing it as, as an opportunity as a fundraiser, I have the opportunity to do something with a donor that neither one of us could do by ourselves. Right. Um, and so that, that was really exciting. And part of that too was, was moving from a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality and realizing that I don't, I don't have to force it. Um, if the person's aligned, um, you know, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I, right. I don't to, to, uh, run around begging or, or worried about the next day. Um, yeah. That was a big shift for, for myself. You know, Reliant Creative has always been a side project for me. I've had other businesses that I wanted to make big and successful so that I could fund this side passion project. And um, over the years, the Lord has just really gently um, and and graciously, as he does, kind of shifted my mindset around fundraising and same idea came originally and still struggle with coming at fundraising as this, with this beggar mentality. Um, But, but his, his shift towards helping me think about it as, Hey, the Lord has called me into this kingdom work and I get to invite people and give people an opportunity to invest and be a part of that kingdom work. Um, that that invitation mindset and partnership mindset is uh, a huge shift, and I and I think a lot of nonprofit leaders can um, can relate to that, where they come in like I did not want to be a fundraiser. I, the one of the big reasons it took us so long to go full time with this ministry is because I just didn't want to be a fundraiser. That's not what I wanted to do. Um, and so as he made that shift in my mind in my heart, uh, it's 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 been a slow process, but. Um, a good one as, as he's shown me, like, this is, this is a good thing. This is not something that you have to come at it with a, a bigger mindset. It's, it's an invitation into something really cool. So yeah, I think That's that fun. relates a lot of ministry leaders can relate to that. When I look at our growth curve and very flat growth, the first few years I was here, a lot of that comes down to me rebelling against the idea that I was <laughs> a fundraiser. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a weird space. I mean, it's it's. I mean, for me, it's very uncomfortable still. And um, but that mind shift, mindset shift has been has been huge. And with every ask and with every invitation into partnership, uh, it just gets easier and easier. And and now I'm starting to see as we meet with new donors and and build out our donor base that. Oh, there's a bit of an excitement to share what God's doing in our ministry. And there's a bit of like, I, I get to invite someone into it. So there's, there's a, a shift in my mindset, in my heart and my just looking forward to opportunities to boast about God and what he's doing through our organization and, and other ministries that we're serving and being a part of and partnered with. And so, um, it's been, it's been a really cool shift over the last probably year for us. So. That's great. Yeah, for me, part of it relates back to the whole thing of of talents 
and God using our talents mm-hmm. kingdom. I had this image of going to Haiti or the Dominican Republic and teaching people to farm, which is absurd. You know, I, I've never farmed a, a hillside in a tropical country <laughs> where my talents are better used are in telling the stories of those who do and those who are. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and coming in, like you said earlier, you realized when you went, you you were meeting farmers who had more experience and could tell you more about, um, you know, water runoff. And uh, I this is not my st- <laughs> wheelhouse, so forgive me if I'm not uh, consistent with the terms. But um, y- your partners in country knew more about some of the smartest people coming out of bi- biology school that you had ever met, and. And this idea that you could bring him something, a farmer something that he didn't already know, like it, that wasn't the problem. The problem yeah. was shifting mindset in other areas. So, yeah, that's that's really cool. Now, as as Plant with Purpose has grown, how have you guys managed the growth and change within the organization? And, and what are some of maybe your reflections on nonprofit management over the last 25 plus years? Yeah, yeah. Um... Boy, there, there's so much there. Um, I think one of the things that that uh, one of the challenges as we've grown has been building systems mm. when communication between the field and the fundraising was one side of my brain to the other. That was pretty easy when we have now have um, different people talking to donors, um, people here who are doing the evaluation and collecting the data and people who are talking to our field partners, there's all sorts of um, communication pathways and processes and standards that need to be set up. And and, um, often learning that and figuring that out when there's pain has been hard. And so trying to get ahead of the process and, and build to be the organization we want to become instead of instead of just reacting to pain. And related to that, and part of becoming the organization we want to become is bringing in outside help. There was a period of time, maybe 15 years ago or so, when I looked around in our office and there was not a single person who'd ever worked in another nonprofit or another ministry or, or with a, overseas with another organization. Um, in fact, a lot of them had never worked another job. Wow. Realized we were very ingrown. We probably had invented all sorts of wheels that didn't need to be reinvented. And um, so we went out of our way to bring in outside expertise, um, hire people who'd worked in other organizations to learn how they'd done it. Um, yeah, it's just in this, in the nonprofit world, I think it's very easy to become insular to think that you're doing good work, but because no lights being shown on it, really not being do- not doing good work. Mm. And as you guys went through that process and and made some of those changes, did you? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that the, maybe there was some upfront cost to that, but did you see on the back end that it ended up being financially more beneficial and more efficient and setting up processes and, and looking and shining light on things that maybe you hadn't shine a, shown a light on that, that you developed m- 
more clear strategies and more clarity to your efficiencies. Like I'm, I'm assuming there was a big shift and, and you saw a lot of success out of that, but in that, in that transition, it was probably painful. Like, ah, oh, I feel like maybe we're spending more money than we should in this area. And then on the flip side, it ended up being better. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. As well as, as uh, sometimes being pleasantly surprised to realize, Hey, what we are doing stands up. What right. we are doing is, is good. But, um, yeah, it, it's so easy, I think, in nonprofit to to not know what you don't know. Um, it, it, much more so, I think, than in um, than in uh, the for profit marketplace, because they're the if you if you don't know if you're producing a product that is substandard, the um, people are going to stop paying for it. Mm-hmm. But in nonprofit, the people paying for the product are trusting your own evaluation of its effectiveness. Right. So what does that process look like for you guys to to look at your processes and make sure they are working and you are seeing um, results? If you know, I know it's hard to quantify results in the ministry space, but um, what does that kind of look like for you guys as, as you've looked into, is this working yeah, well, internationally, we've developed a, a pretty robust monitoring and evaluation system. Um, and every three years, we look at a bunch of a bunch of metrics to measure poverty, to measure changes in the environment, and to measure spiritual growth. And uh, um, the first two are much easier to measure. To measure the change in poverty is is, is much easier because it's it's much more quantifiable. Um, similarly, environmental change, we use satellite imaging to, to see the difference that we're making in the forest. And we're working on um, monitoring water quality to see the difference we're making on the water resources. Um, in sp- spiritual change, we use a number of different ways of measuring that. Some of it is um, bringing together um, uh, pastors in the project or in the program areas, I should say, to talk about the most significant changes they've seen. Um, and part of it is we we do a household survey, and one of the questions we ask is, um, you know, how often do you help your neighbors? And we see an increase in that. Why that? Well, it's a proxy for the fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are working in areas that are nominally Christian, mostly. So, for example, Eastern Congo one of the most horrific places in terms of ethnic conflict. It's been called the rape capital of the world because rape has been used as a weapon of war. I mean, right. Horrible place, but nominally Christian. Everybody at least will say they're Christian. So measuring things like back baptisms and conversions, you know, didn't, we didn't feel like that's going to tell us much. Right. But are you, are you helping your neighbor? Do you, you know, that, that tells us a little bit more about, about how you're manifesting your faith. Hmm. Now, obviously God's doing some really cool stuff to your organization. What, what do you guys do to communicate the stories of how God is moving through your ministry to your donors and supporters? And I'm um, based on some of your answers already I, and, and some of your stated gifts in, 
you, you, you know and understand the power of story. And based on some of your answers, I can see that story is important to you. So what does that kind of look like as you guys communicate to your donor base with regards to storytelling? I mean, we're a storytelling agency. That's where our passion is. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, and I think the video I already mentioned, it probably is the most effective job we've done of that. And it's the, because it's the people themselves communicating their own story. Um, but video we use a lot. Um, I just think that that's the best one that we've done. We use video a lot. We, you know, use social media quite a bit. The podcast has been an effort to do that. One of the interesting things is that we need to, we don't need to just do it with our supporters and donors. We need to do it internally because it's very easy for, Mm. um, you know, as the, as the ministry grows, it's very easy for it to become just a job. Right. And so we have something here that we call um, Monday Partner Inspiration. And every Monday um, we have a, a woman on the development team who shares a, a highlight story from the field um, with everybody. And it's somebody in their own words um, talking about how it's just written. It's not video, but um, talking about how the program has has made transformation, brought transformation to them. That's a really cool idea. Internal storytelling. I love that. Yeah, it's, I think it's easy to get caught up in in commuting, communicating outside and externally to your donor base. Obviously, that's so important. Uh, but remembering that your staff and your team and your employees drive the success of this organization and the effectiveness of it. And so if you can internally storytell and inspire them to continue to um, one, remember why they're doing what they're doing, but two, just be inspired to continue to pursue and, and push through, especially when times get difficult or you run into obstacles or challenges. Um, that's a really cool idea. I like that. Yeah. Thanks. Well, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's something I really firmly believe in is that, that, um, you know, it's easy to have a job, but we want this to come from people's heart. And so another aspect of that is, is that within everybody's first year of employment, regardless of what their job is, um, you know, answering phones or doing accounting, we make sure everybody gets to the, one of the projects and meets the people that they're serving. Oh, cool. That's right. That's awesome. So you have, you have like internal quote unquote vision trips that you'll do. Yeah. Well, usually what they, we do is we bring them along on an external vision trip, but gotcha. yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, a trip serve a purpose both ways. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, from your viewpoint, what is the relationship between poverty and environmental degradation and how does environmental degradation fit into, uh, the poverty quote unquote po- poverty cause puzzle with things like clean water and education and unemployment, etc. You know, we could go on and on with all the, the niche issues or, or verticals or Socio, social economic issues. Do you view environmental degradation as a poverty cause that is solved, that if solved would result in the eradication of poverty, or is it a piece to the puzzle, the, the ultimate puzzle? And ultimately, how does the gospel fit into how you view your work? That's a, that's a really long question. And I'm sure there's a lot of intricacies and variables to the answer, but maybe share what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, I think that it's um, 
it's foundational. In fact, you, you, you mentioned how does it fit with things like clean water. Well, that is an environmental issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the forest and a healthy environment is God's natural filter. And um, so we do a lot in the clean water area, but it's just upstream, no pun intended, um, you know, by by restoring the watershed, um, the aquifers are restored, the streams flow clearer, they, stro- they flow um, year-round, whereas they might dry up, wells dry up, you know, it, it completely changes the... The environment, um, I'm talking in a circle here, but um, which is, is foundational because everything's built on that. Right. Uh, would we, if we solved environmental de- degradation, would that result in the eradication of poverty? No, it, it wouldn't. It, but it would go a long way towards eradicating poverty for subsistence farmers. And there's nearly a billion people who make their living as subsistence farmers. They're about as closely dependent on the land as you can possibly be. Mm-hmm. The rest of us are too. We just are further removed from the immediate consequences. That's really cool. Well, and and it it seems like this um, this piece of the poverty puzzle kind of relates to every single thing. Again, to, for that to bring up that pun downstream, it, it helps solve some of the clean water issue it I'm, I'm assuming maybe i'm wrong on this but if you've got people that are making more money on their farms they can provide and and afford now education for their children i'm sure it, you've got all kinds of stories of how it's provided jobs and, and and helps solve some of the unemployment issues within the the poverty conversation so i mean all these pieces when they come together um you know, there's not one single silver bullet to the solving of poverty, but they kind of all go hand in hand and, and fit as within a, the puzzle. Obviously, if we did, if we solved all clean water issues, education issues, unemployment issues, um, environmental degradation issues, but we still weren't sharing the gospel, none of those things would take root, right? We know that as believers, but, um, it's it's just interesting to see how they all kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned education in there because that is a, a more downstream effect, and yet we've seen a dramatic impact. That's one of the things we measure in our impact evaluations. Um, I was just looking up the numbers so I make sure that I quote it correctly to you here. But, um, you know, for example, in eastern Congo, um, after two years with our program in the area, girls were three times more likely to attend school. And one of our most common, um, you know, partner inspiration stories that we hear is my kids are in the university today because of the money I saved because of Mm. the, the prosperity of my farm. But yeah, we measure in particular girls in secondary school and the impact of our program on that. Um, that's really cool. Now, are you guys are you guys partnering with other organizations to come in and and like partner with a, a clean water organization or an education organization to do what they're good at, so that you can focus on what you've done? You've mentioned that you guys are doing 
um, some microfinance stuff. Have you partnered with other microfinance organizations to share their models and their strategies? Um, we have de- definitely done some partnership. For the most part, we're working in areas where there aren't. We try and find areas where there aren't other people working, and then try and empower the local church maybe to get involved in education. Hmm. For example, the local churches, as a result of the curriculum that we've worked with in the Dominican Republic, the local churches um, uh, have set up literacy classes, adult literacy classes. Um, but we have a number of small-scale partnerships currently, and we're in discussions for for some larger-scale partnerships. That's really cool. Yeah. We just shared an the, the reason I asked that is I just wrote an article on partnership and and that idea has just been really uh, on my mind a lot lately. Um, what could it look like if organizations would could focus on what they're good at and partner with other organizations that are good at what they are good at and and kind of within the parachurch space um, f- function more like the the body of Christ is designed where you've got hands and feet and eyes and ears that are all given unique gifts and talents and abilities. Um, what could it look like for organizations and ministries to partner with, with each other in, in local communities where they're already working and, and instead of trying to do everything, um, yeah, focus on what they're good at and part with another organization that's good at what they are good at. We- we, in Burundi, we partnered with World Relief in the past on a, a refugee resettlement program. Um, we also partnered with them in, in Haiti after the, the earthquake. Mm. Um, a small-scale partnership with a secular environmental group working in Haiti oh, on, cool. uh, on uh, Habitat for the um, Black Caps Petrol. Um, and that's been that's been. Pretty cool. Um, so yeah, there've been a, a number of up till now fairly small scale partnerships, but we've got some conversations going about some pretty large scale partnerships as well. That's awesome. Well, Scott, I don't want to take any more of your time. This has been this has been awesome. Thank you so much for for being on the show. Can I pray for Plant with Purpose? Oh yes, thank you very much, Father. We just lift up Plant with Purpose and Scott as he leads this organization. I pray that you would just guide him and lead him and give him clear direction on um, uh, where you want to take this organization and where you want to take him as a leader. Father, I pray that he would just pursue you diligently and uh, seek your your guidance. Father, I pray that you would make that clear, uh, that they would be able to stay nimble, to adjust to direction shifts if you have that for them. Father, and I just pray that you would uh, continue to work in and through Plant With Purpose to um, rescue and redeem and uh, do the incredible work you're doing through this organization. It sounds like they've got some amazing stories coming out of Plan With Purpose, and uh, we recognize that that is just all you. Um, but I just thank you for Scott's willingness and his team's willingness to say yes uh, to your invitation, Father. We love you. Thank you so much that you've invited us into this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Scott, if people want to get a hold of you or want to know more about Plant With Purpose, how can they, how can they find you? Um, we are at plantwithpurpose.org, and specifically, I'm at scott at plantwithpurpose.org. Perfect. Perfect. Look at that, sharing your, your email, direct access. You bet. <laughs> well, Scott, thanks for being on the show. Great. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors, or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, if you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org. See you next time.